Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Sometimes a prank can go too far. I will for never, never forget one morning when I was six years old. My brother Dan was four, and we shared a room right across the hall from my parents. And my uncle was in town, and he was sleeping on a pull-out sofa in our living room. Dan and I, being young and bored and uh, awake, could not pass up the opportunity to have some early morning fun. We qu- quietly opened the door to our room. We tiptoed past my, bar- uh, my parents' bedroom. And uh, we placed an enormous plastic tarantula on my uncle's chest. We crept back to our room, holding back laughter the entire time, collapsed on our beds, and waited. After what seemed like an eternity, we were startled by full-throated screams coming from across the hall, right outside our bedroom. I don't know what we were expecting, but we weren't expecting that. (laughs) He lost it. It did not take long for my parents to solve this case. And just a few moments later, my dad was at our door. We quickly descended uh, from the thrill of pulling off the prank to just a few minutes later staring at my dad face to face. He slowly walked in the door, red-faced and disheveled, agitated from being woken up by a house guest screaming in his living room at 6 a.m. He sat down at the foot of the bed. Boys, what you did was disrespectful and rude. Uncle Matt is a guest in our house. But before he could even finish the sentence, a smile surfaced on his face. (laughs) And And this gave way to some restrained laughter. My brother and I didn't know what to do. We shot a look at each other. We didn't know what to do with this plot twist. We weren't sure what was going on. But he could not disguise his amusement, his entertainment, with hearing his older brother freak out over a plastic spider. His laughter revealed his true feelings on our, on our behavior. And just for your information, we were let off the hook after uh, a sincere apology to my uncle. And needless to say, that was the last time he ever stayed at our house. <laughs> laughter is a fascinating. It's, it's, a, it's a complex expression of our, our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. We laugh when we receive great news at the safe delivery of a child, an accepted marriage proposal, an amazing job offer, or at the punchline of a well-written joke. But we also laugh to mask our insecurities and our fears We laugh out of hopelessness and fear. We laugh cynically and mockingly, and we laugh to ridicule others. And what about that strange laughter at a funeral or when you're gathered around a hospital bed? Almost like you just need to laugh to let out all of the stress and the anxiety and the grief. Laughter is fascinating, it's complex, and it's revealing. We see such a strange expression of laughter in our lesson from Genesis 18 this evening. 
Sarah laughs upon hearing the Lord's promise of a son. And not only that, but there's this strange interaction between the Lord and Sarah over her laugh, this scrutiny about what's going on. So tonight I want to look at what's going on in this scene. But before we do that, we must locate ourselves within the Genesis narrative. So let's take a step back, enter the story, and then after doing that, I want to look at two, two themes in reflection of this passage. I want to reflect on the character of faith and the laughter of God. The character of faith and the laughter of God. But first, the background. In Genesis 12, the Lord calls Abram and Sarah to go from their country, to participate in his mission to the world. Through Abram, he will bless all the nations. He will make a great nation through him, and in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Genesis 15, Abram Abram is concerned about his childlessness and how this is all going to work out. We learned earlier that Sarah is unable to have children. In Genesis 15, the Lord reiterates his promise that surely his child will be his very own son and his offspring will outnumber the stars. Abraham believes the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This faith in God's promise, this trust in the Lord is what enables Paul in his letter to the Galatians to call Abraham the man of faith. But after 10 years of living in Canaan, still without a son and not growing any younger, Sarah and Abram take matters into their own hands. Sarah suggests that the Lord intends to fulfill his promise through Abram having a son with a surrogate mother, Hagar, her Egyptian servant. And so Abram has a son with Hagar named Ishmael. And from their perspective, after all these years of waiting for a son, they finally solved the problem. Moving forward in the narrative, the Lord then appears to Abraham 13 years later, when he is 99. 13 years later. This whole time, Abraham and Sarah believed the Lord would fulfill his promise through Ishmael, who is already a teenager at this point. We see the Lord establishes his covenant with Abraham and renames him Abraham. And after this, the Lord then clarifies the means of his promise and declares, speaking of Sarah here, I will bless her, and moreover, I will bless you, a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Abraham responds by falling on his face and laughing. He says, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Abraham laughs. This begins a thread of laughter that we see played out over the next few scenes in Genesis. Abraham is caught off guard. He's confused at how this is going to unfold at their age and even why it matters. They have a son, Ishmael. So Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Abraham and Sarah still think Ishmael is the son of promise. They have by their own means and very understandably figured out a solution to God's promise and their inability to have children. Much time has passed, and according to our passage today, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So she was post-menopause, and it was not even possible for her to have children. 
What would be the point in waiting for something that was not possible? I think we here in this room tonight should readily sympathize with their, their problem-solving skills. We, especially with all our technologies and our productivity methods, we hate to wait. Just pulling up at a red light or, or waiting in the store at the checkout line, I know I'm prone to pull up my phone and to see how I can optimize my time. It's a fancy word to distract yourself. But rather than 30 seconds, Abraham and Sarah have waited their entire marriage for a child. And then even within that, 25 years after the particular promise of a son. Now that is a picture of truly waiting. I was traveling for most of the month of June and was away from Mandy and our two daughters. Mandy was trying to help Margaret, our two-year-old, process and and begin to conceptualize waiting for me to come home and how hard that can be. Mandy often told Margaret, it's hard to wait. And as little children do, Margaret has latched onto that phrase and pressed into its full meaning. I probably hear it about 10 times a day. She says it earnestly and full of heart. We hear it when when we're waiting for dinner to be ready. It's hard to wait. As we sit on the couch and waiting, we wait for her sister to wake up from nap. It's hard to wait. On our way to grandma and papa's house. It's hard to wait. But she's right. She overuses it. It's, it's, it's an exaggeration, but she's right. It's hard to wait. So for someone who could hardly wait in a checkout line, I can't imagine the uncertainty and doubt of waiting upon the Lord like Abraham and Sarah. And it is in this uncertainty and confusion that the Lord reiterates his promise to Abraham. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And so it is here, at this point in the narrative, that we arrive at our scene today. Genesis 18. In our passage, the Lord appears to Abraham as he sat by his tent in the heat of the day. He's sitting on his front porch, and suddenly three men arrive. The text says right in front of him. Abraham quickly responds according to the customs of his day. He bows down. He shows first-class hospitality. He orders for their feet to be washed, and then he quickly provides fine food for them to eat under the shade of a tree. Many early church theologians looking at this verse will interpret this as an Old Testament manifestation of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. I don't think that's clear in the text. It's a rich interpretation. But what is clear is that as our scene develops this evening, we see that one of the men does, in fact, represent the Lord. And both Abraham and Sarah address him as such. So looking at verse 9, we see the men specifically asking Abraham, Where is Sarah, your wife? They have come to address Sarah. All the previous conversations that Abraham has had with the Lord, have been between him and the Lord, and have been focused on his promise to Abraham. We see here the attention shifts to Sarah. We read that Sarah was listening at the tent door right behind him. Perhaps she had her her hand cupped around her ear, coming up to the tent, just trying to make out what these three men are saying. And it is there that she hears the Lord repeat his promise. I will surely return to you this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
Sarah laughs. She says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She can only laugh at such an idea. She is old. She is barren. She's post-menopause. How is she to be a mother? Many commentators make the point here that Sarah is laughing purely out of disbelief in God's promise, his, her, her distrust in his ability to do what he says he will do. At a certain level, this is true. But at an even deeper level, I love what one commentator says. He says, her laughter and doubts were not the result of stubborn resistance to God's will, but of hopelessness and years of disappointment. I think that's exactly right. Her laughters and doubts were not the result of stubborn resistance to God's will, but of hopelessness and years of disappointment. How well that describes so many of us here tonight. Our doubts and all the ways in which we distrust God and push him away aren't always stemming from our stubborn and active resistance to God's will. Certainly, sometimes that's what's going on. But often, like Sarah, I think some of us here, I know myself included, they stem from hopelessness and disappointment. Perhaps you have asked something from God so deeply personal, no one else even knows about it, and yet nothing has changed. Maybe you prayed for peace in your marriage or with your children, but the conflict never goes away. Or maybe you prayed for healing and the illness grew worse or your loved one died. Maybe you prayed for your brother or your sister or for your son or your daughter to encounter the love of Jesus and to find life in him. But they want nothing to do with God and it breaks your heart. Or perhaps after all your hard work, you land your dream job, you build your family, or you finally get to the finish line, you, you retire, and you just find yourself disappointed, disappointed, not sure what's next. And so while I think we confess and we intellectually know that the Lord is mighty to save, to heal us from all our disorders and our illnesses, to save our marriages and our families, sometimes I think, like Sarah, we're just tired, we're worn out, hopeless, and disappointed. And so we too, we laugh. We laugh to ourselves. We laugh because perhaps we've grown cynical and skeptical of God's presence in our lives or his power to save, to act. And so we need to hear the word of God. I love what John Wesley comments about this scene. He says, Abraham was old, and Sarah was old, and both as good as dead. And then the word of God took place. Then the word of God took place. And this is the same word of God that speaks to us tonight and invites us to faith in the God who is faithful. And a, a faith that clings to the promise of God. So I want to talk now about the character of this faith. Our faith is not that God will change all of our circumstances as he did for Sarah. Surely, as our text says in verse 14, nothing is too hard for the Lord. 
But it would be a mistake to interpret this verse as a promise to claim for ourselves today. As one commentator puts it, rather it is an attribute to an embrace, a faith to aspire to, and a hope to sustain us. Our faith is shaped by the hope that nothing is too hard for the Lord. But ultimately, the great promise of Scripture is that God reconciles sinners to himself. Abraham and Sarah could only dream of the covenantal promises being fulfilled in Christ. And as we see throughout the Genesis narrative, it makes it pretty clear that Abraham and Sarah's faith by itself is not even that impressive. They are frequently taking matters into their own hands. They're fearful. They're distrustful. And even as we saw today, they laugh at the Lord's plan for their lives. But as the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him faithful who had promised. It is always the object of our faith that saves us, for our faith itself is fragile and unsteady. Sarah exemplifies that the assurance of our faith is never in our changing attitudes and our dispositions, but always in the character of God who is faithful. The definitive miracle in each of our lives is that we were dead in our sins and that now we are alive in Christ Jesus. The word of God has taken place and by his faithfulness we are saved. This is the foundation of our faith, that we are finally and fully forgiven in Jesus And through his cross, he bears away all the sins of the world. For in Christ, God subjected himself to all the darkness of the laughing world and the foolishness of a Roman cross. He endured the mockery of the judging world, for he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He humbled himself to the laughter of the Roman soldiers who dressed him in a purple cloak and a crown of thorns, mockingly saluting him, Hail, King of the Jews! He humiliated himself to the laughter of the crowd who mocked him to one another, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And he subjected himself to the ridicule of the chief priests and the scribes who said to one another, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Jesus experienced the agony of the cruel laughter of the world. He bore in his body all of our sins, every faithless and cynical laugh, every act of unrolled and unrest against God so that we might come to know the laughter of God, the joy of our salvation. So I want to close now this evening with just a word about this laughter of God. Just a few chapters later in the Genesis narrative, the Lord visits Sarah and does as he promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. His name was Isaac, which not incidentally means he laughs. God works despite Sarah's exhausted faith and faithless laughter and gives her Isaac. He laughs. 
Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. She is awestruck by the power of God and his promised word. Her laughter of hopelessness and disappointment has been transformed into the laughter of joy. God is faithful. Even amidst all the waiting and the uncertainty, he is faithful. And he is mighty to save because he saved you and he saved me. And that is a miracle. The laughter of God is better than we could ever imagine. So in the commotion of our daily lives, as we run from meeting to meeting, try to get to doctor's appointments on time, turn papers in, and fit all of our summer festivities in before the summer comes to a close. And even in those moments when we feel disappointed and hopeless, and as my daughter Margaret would say, it's hard to wait. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who has endured the laughter of the world, so that he might transform all of our faithless laughter into the joyous laughter of God. For you were once dead, and now you are alive. Thanks be to God. Amen.